it's funny, some of you have been raised in church, you, you, you could probably recognize this, but every once in a while, the Lord will pull out like an old song or an old verse or an old statement or an old slogan from like years and years ago and something that you thought you had forgotten from the Rolodex of your mind. And he'll just kind of remind you of it. And I was just reflecting on how good God has been and all the miracles he's done. And you know, when God starts to do something good, he does it so good, it's almost embarrassing, you know? It's almost like, I don't even know if I can tell people how good God has been, lest somebody else get insecure about my blessing, you know? And so I was thinking about it this week and that old song just kept coming to me and, and, and maybe ain't nobody else know it and that's fine, but we used to sing it when I was a kid and the, the lines were very simple. It said, what a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And sometimes God will bless you so good that that's all you can say is, look what the Lord has done. What a mighty God. Only a God as good as the one that we serve could have so foreordained the affairs of life to arrange it for such a time as this. And we are living now, I believe, <clears throat> in the goodness of God. And I think it will only get better. 2024 is going to be your supernatural breakthrough, I believe, for this church and this people. And we're going to see miracles that we didn't even know were signed, sealed, and on their way, delivered on our doorstep. We're going to be caught off guard, surprised by his goodness. We're going to have things coming from the left and the right, from above, from below, as God is coalescing people, resources, relationships, open doors. And I'm just telling you, this region has no idea what God has in store for it. For scripture says, I has not seen nor ear has heard what God has reserved for his people in these last days. And I think God saved something special for us. I really do. I think God has saved something special for the church in this hour, because if not, then he would have already raptured us and taken us home. So if God's left us here, it's not because things are getting worse and worse. It's because things are going to get better and better. And we're going to see the church of Jesus Christ rise back again to a place of prominence and power in the Northwest like we have never seen before. It's going to be so good. It's going to embarrass the enemy back into whatever hole he crawled out of. And you and I get the, <laughs> get the best seats in the house to see that happen. Let me begin this evening by sharing a story with you from the not too distant past about an interesting event in American history. Historians name Thomas Jefferson as the single most influential of the founding fathers. Without him, this nation would have never been. He helped author the Declaration of Independence. He founded the University of Virginia. He oversaw the Louisiana Purchase. He established the United States Military Academy, and he helped abolish the slave trade in 1807. But how many of you know, no matter how smart you are, without Jesus, you're still a little dumb? But in 1820, six years before he died, President Thomas Jefferson undertook maybe his most memorable and controversial act. He set out to create his own version of the New Testament. And here was his reasoning. Jesus was a great teacher, and Jesus was a great philosopher. And Jesus had great insights on morality, but his miracles were just too ridiculous to believe. So Thomas Jefferson, using a razor and scissors, cut out the miracles, cut out the resurrection, 
cut out the ascension, cut out all the supernatural events that were recorded. And he ended up with a New Testament that was only 84 pages long. And he named this book, The Philosophy, Life, and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. In one sense, it's eye-opening that if you are to remove the supernatural out of what the scriptures records, it becomes a relatively short book and a relatively boring book. I'm so struck by Thomas Jefferson's impression as he reads the pages of the New Testament. These miracles are just too hard to believe. <laughs> I don't know if you have ever felt like that at a time in your life or your Christian walk. It's almost felt like that for me in this last season. Oh, there's been hardships and challenges, but at the same time, I have seen the miraculous hand of God in ways that confound my human ability to rationalize it. It's too good not to believe. And although it's easy to look back at a man who in 1820 cut out the vast majority of the New Testament, it begs the question, how many of us today are reading a Bible that we have conveniently edited in our own minds to skip out on the stuff that we find hard to believe? See, friend, either the Bible will change you or you will change it. Either the Lord will cut you or you will cut it. Either God will be true and every man a liar or man will be true and God be found a liar. But I can tell you this, oh, I've been inspired by a lot of books, but I've only ever been transformed by one. I've been educated by a lot of texts, but my mind has only ever been renewed by one. <clears throat> I have been entertained by a lot of novels, but I've only ever been captivated by one. I'm not sure where you're at this evening with God, but my Bible is filled with miracles. My Bible is filled with signs and wonders. My Bible is filled with the unexplainable and wonderful works of a sovereign God who still heals the sick, who still cleanses the leper, who still casts out demons, who still raises the dead. It's not just history. It's not just narrative. It's not just a good story. It's not just personal reflections. It's a living document that that testifies to a living God. See, I refuse, I, I simply refuse to reduce God to somehow fit within, within the intellectual framework of Western culture. I'm not skipping out on miracles because they take too much faith to believe. For the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. No, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is, watch, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. We're not changing scripture, we're changing culture. We aren't downgrading the word, we're upgrading our minds. And if our experience doesn't match what the scripture says, we're not changing scripture, we're changing us. Now, Jesus wasn't just a good leader. He wasn't just a moral teacher. He wasn't just an influential philosopher. He was the son of the living God 
who was raised from the dead by God's own spirit. And still today, hear me, everything hinges on the resurrection. Watch what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If Christ has not been raised, then our hope is only in this world and that's pathetic. If Christ has not been raised, how then will we be raised from the dead? If Christ has not been raised, then God is a liar. But if Christ has been raised... If it is terrifyingly true that 2,000 years ago, when the ground shook and a stone was rolled away and a mortally wounded man walked out of the grave with a glorious body shining bright as the sun, if Christ has been raised, there is no fear in death. And if Christ has been raised, there is there now no condemnation for those who are in him. And if Christ has been raised, my sins are forgiven, my future secured, and my hope has been anchored above. And if Christ has been raised, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If Jesus is dead and the dead are not raised, then nothing else matters. But if Jesus is alive and the dead one day will all be raised, then nothing else matters. Let me say it again. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And that's why the early apostolic fathers spent so much time absolutely destroying the lie of Gnosticism, which tried to convince people through wise-sounding philosophy that the spiritual world and the physical world were bifurcated compartments that never interacted with each other. They said, well, maybe his spirit was dead and then God caused his spirit to be raised again. But certainly it makes no sense that a man would physically die only three days later to be raised from the grave. And this is why the early apostolic fathers were willing to give their very lives to defend the notion of the hypostatic union. That Jesus was fully God, yes, but he was also fully man. For in the fullness of time, God sent his one and only son to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to live in the confinements of the human experience, never losing his title to be part of the Godhead, but fully experiencing what it was like to be human. And this Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory and honor and is coming soon. Let me say it again, everything, hear me, everything hinges on the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection because of the eyewitness accounts of the early disciples.
I believe in the resurrection because the early apostolic fathers were martyred due to their refusal to deny the living Jesus. I believe in the resurrection because it changed a murderer named Saul into a missionary named Paul. I believe in the resurrection because only a God who could raise his son Jesus by his own spirit could compel people to follow him even unto death. This is not an analogy. This is not a poetic reinterpretation. This is not some grand spiritual allegory. The resurrection of Jesus is an undisputed historical fact that compels us to put our faith in the one and only resurrected Son of God. <laughs> That's why baptism is so powerful, because in baptism we identify with his death and we are raised unto new life. That is why the taking of Holy Communion is so powerful, because we celebrate his broken body and his spilt blood, and we declare these things until he returns. We are reminding ourselves of both the bloody cross and the empty tomb because they are the two central pieces of imagery that weave together the fabric of all of Christendom. Paul says in Romans, do you know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that brings us to Luke 24, where the early church historian Luke records a story that immediately follows the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, but the disciples don't yet believe it. In fact, the first witnesses and preachers of the resurrected Christ were the women who went to the tomb to mourn only to discover that the one they called rabbi had been resurrected. It's powerful and it's interesting that the gospel authors would include the women's account of an empty grave. Because in the first century, a woman was not even allowed to bring public testimony into a court of law because their word was not considered authoritative or valid. But Jesus, interrupting the cultural norms, uses women to be the first preachers of an empty tomb, and in doing so, being the first to announce to the disciples who were locked in a room, scared to death, hiding, figuring that they would be the next on the chopping block, that the one who they crucified is alive and well. They still don't believe it, so Jesus has to walk through a wall, show them the holes in his hand, in his side, and in his feet, and say, if you don't believe me, reach your hand into my wounds, and you will see that the one that they crucified is more alive alive today than he has ever been before. <laughs> Christ has been raised from the dead, but some of the disciples don't yet believe it. The events surrounding his crucifixion have been just too traumatic. The persecution has been just too disheartening. The threats are just too scary. The women who have been to the tomb, they believe. The Roman guards who were disrupted by the angels, they believe. But the disciples who walked with him for the last three and a half years are yet to accept the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead just like he said he would. And in Luke 24, Luke records the story of two of these disciples who don't yet believe. 
And their story reads like this. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked together, as they talked together of all these things which had happened, so it was while they conversed and they reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. <laughs> but their eyes was restrained, so they did not know him. And I want you to see this tonight. After the crucifixion, instead of staying in Jerusalem to witness the resurrection, the disciples either go back to fishing, they go into hiding, or they simply walk back home. Do you know that Jesus prophesies his own resurrection no less than 21 times in the gospel? It's not like he hasn't told them what's about to happen. But the disillusionment of the last three days has so damaged their hearts that instead of sticking around to see the miracle, they go back to their old way of living. And is not that our temptation today? Isn't it interesting that God can tell us something a thousand times in a row and we don't believe it? But the enemy only has to tell us something once and we accept it as truth. See, I know the miracle is coming. I know the breakthrough is coming. I know the restoration is coming. I know the next building is coming. I know the next elementary school is coming. All the disciples had to do was wait for 72 hours and they would see the promise fulfilled. Hear me. But if you allow the trauma of the in-between to keep you from staying engaged in the process. You'll miss out on an opportunity to witness what God's about to do next. The disciples not being present didn't stop the resurrection. Jesus wasn't like, I'm not ready to come out of the, I'm not ready to come out of the tomb. Peter's not here. He's, Peter's gotta see this. He will not believe this. Just wait, just wait. Are they there yet? Are they there yet? All right, I'm gonna come out. <laughs> the disciples not being present didn't stop the resurrection. Hear me very clearly. It just meant that they missed out on being a witness to it. See, I can't afford to allow my pain to be the reason I don't show up and stick around because I got this holy expectation that refuses to allow me to miss a Sunday because I'm just not quite ever sure all what God is gonna do. <laughs> See, if we was to be honest tonight, some of us treat church like that. If I don't get what I want, if I get offended, if I don't understand, if I encounter difficulty, if my miracle take longer than I would like it to, then I'm booking a one-way ticket back to my former life. No, friend, victory belongs to people who show up and keep showing up and knock and keep knocking and pray and keep praying until one day they see in the light what God has been working on in the dark. <laughs> you know, right now, God is working in the dark recesses of your heart. You don't even know what he's cooking. You don't even know what he's preparing. You don't even know what he's fixing. So often we walk through this life with this mindset of existential crisis. Where is God in the midst of my storm? He's been there the whole time. He's been holding things together. You think you would have made it this far if God wasn't in your corner? 
you'd have been a nervous wreck. You wouldn't have even made it out the womb. What are you talking about? God has always been for you. God has always been with you. God has always been working on your behalf. You weren't always able to see it, but if you'll have the faith to keep showing up, one day you will see in the light what he'd been cooking in the dark. Now the Bible says this, their eyes, watch, they was restrained. Now watch, that word restrained means to be held back, seized up, or taken control of. I would submit to you tonight that pain that you refuse to appropriately process ends up impacting your ability to see. See, Jesus was right next to them and they knew it not. And why? Because their vision was limited by the trauma that they worshiped. I'm always shook by the story in Genesis when a man named Abram and his nephew Lot separate. They was working together, but all of a sudden, you remember the story, Abram's flocks begin to grow. Lot's flocks begin to grow. Pretty soon, they were accidentally stepping all over each other. And so Abraham called his nephew to him and he said, listen, I wanna be at peace I want to have friendly relationship. I want to be good when I see you at Thanksgiving dinner in the tent in the desert this year. I think it would be better if we went our separate ways. He said, Lot, you choose first. Any land that you see, why don't you just go and take it and I'll take whatever's left and God will take care of me and God will take care of you. And the Bible says that when Lot and Abram went their separate ways, that the Lord spoke to Abram. Open your eyes and let me show you what is to come. Number the sands of the earth. This will be like the nations that are blessed through your generational lineage. And God creates incredible covenant with Abram. I've always loved that verse, but I didn't know why until I started to further explore the names of the individuals that were involved. Do you know that Lot's name in the Hebrew translates to this phrase Veiled vision. It's almost as if God couldn't speak in fullness and clarity to Abram until the veil that blocked his vision had been lifted off. I don't think the question is, is God speaking to me? I think the question is, are we listening to his voice? And how many times have we allowed the veil of pain, the veil of trauma, the veil of familiarity, the veil of past relationships, the veil of toxic emotions, the veil of our family system, the veil of our unhealed trauma, the veil of our untreated depression, the veil of our woundedness, the veil of our missed expectations, the veil of our miscarriage, the veil of our childhood abuse. How many times do we allow the veils that sometimes we don't even know are there? to block our eyes and our ears from hearing what God would desire to say. Jesus was right next to them and they didn't know it. But here's what I love. They don't deserve it. They're headed in the wrong direction. 
They are arguing amongst themselves regarding the crushing disappointment of seeing the one that they followed executed on a tree. And in the midst of their depressive dialogue, Jesus invites himself to the conversation. You ever had a moment like that in your faith? You just complaining, processing, upset, bitter, hurt. Maybe you processing with a friend, maybe you're just processing out loud so you can hear yourself talk and all of a sudden in the midst of it, Jesus steps into the conversation. And you have this awareness, like tonight, I'm not alone. He, he is here right with me. And why would he even want to be here? I was just complaining about him and all of the miracles I haven't seen yet and all of the prayers that haven't yet been answered. And why is it happening for everybody else, but it's not happening for me? And I was just so upset that that person really ticked me off at church. And I was trying to give myself an excuse on why I never had to go back. And I was really upset about what Russell said on Sunday or the shoes he wore or the graphic he showed. And I just want to be mad. And all of a sudden, God says, excuse me. And he invites himself into the conversation. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Watch. How many times has Jesus drawn near and yet you didn't even know it? How many times has Jesus showed up in the midst of your disillusionment and depression and just sat there until you felt his undeniable presence? <laughs> I've been so thankful over the last nine years of church planting and adding campuses and trying to figure this out one day at a time that there have been so many moments of high highs, but also real low lows. And whether it's personal challenges or organizational challenges or feelings like I can't go on and I'm not smart enough to do this. And I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders and I just wanna give up. And how many times like God has sent really good friends who are willing just to sit in my room and not offer advice, but just sit there until I feel and sense the peace that is on their life coming on mine. <laughs> Listen, you need friends in your life who don't always need to give you advice in order to make their presence felt in the midst of your storm. We got a world that's so quick to dispense advice like we even know what the heck we're talking about. Well, let me give you all my expert wisdom. You're like, you're just as dumb as me. What are you talking about? <laughs> now, the Bible says that Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, that he is the suffering servant who is familiar with our pain. He is the one who walks into the middle of our darkest night. And sometimes all we need is the nearness of his presence to know it's gonna be okay. The sun's gonna come out tomorrow. I'm gonna wake up and face another day. And if God be for me, then, then who can, can be against me? Is your vision restrained today? Is, is your ability to see held back by the unforeseen circumstances of your life? Could you trust God tonight that he is working it out, that he hasn't forgotten about you, that his plans and his purposes will in fact prevail? <laughs> Hear me. If you can't see, you can't succeed. Hear me. If you can't envision, you can't grow. If you can't dream, you can't have hope for what's ahead. 
oh, I think today would be a real good day to allow God to heal your eyes so that you can see again. Now listen, you may have come from Emmaus, but your home is Jerusalem. You, have, you may have been born in dysfunction, but you can, you can live in freedom. You, you may have come from fishing, but your destiny is souls. I simply refuse to allow my pain to cause me to go back to what God has rescued me from. And so Jesus shows up to a conversation. <clears throat> Sometime in the first quarter of, of 2024, uh, my wife and I will do a night where we uh, team teach. It's something we very rarely do, but she's going to share her really profound story on, on coming out of really a horrendous background of some of the most terrible sexual abuse that you could ever imagine. And I'm always so struck whenever my wife shares because, number one, authenticity is something that you can't fake. And when somebody authentically has a story of overcoming what they carry within themselves is the power to help other people overcome as well. And so when she shares her story, it's, it's very powerful, but oftentimes the questions that people ask when they go through really traumatic experiences is like, where was God in the midst of my pain? And when I hear her communicate and talk about a God who would walk in the room and like hold her when she felt like the world was falling apart, I'm just so struck and impacted by it. Cause I'm like, that's what God's done for us. When we were in the miry clay, he got down in the miry clay with us and he lifted us up. When we were in the dirt, like the woman caught in the act of prostitution, he knelt down in the dirt and lifted us up. When you were lost in the ditch, he was the good Samaritan who knelt down in the midst of your pain and bandaged your wounds and lifted you up. And when Isaiah says he is the one who is rising with healing in his wings, I am struck that when he rises, so do we. <laughs> now watch, watch, watch. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, verse 17, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? <laughs> I love when Jesus asks questions he knows the answers to. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Literally, he was telling Jesus, are you dumb? <laughs> have you not known the things which happened here these last couple days? I love this. He said to them, what things? They're like, okay, this, okay. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Watch, watch, watch. We were hoping. Mm, mm. We were hoping that it was he who was gonna redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. 
I love this. Jesus isn't asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking the question to help reveal their hearts, which by the way is the same reason God asks us questions today. Who do you say that I am? Do you wanna be made well? Why are you so afraid? Why did you doubt? Are you going to leave also? Who touched me? The questions of Jesus aren't reflective of his lack of knowledge. Questions from God help reveal to us the true nature of our heart and our motives. You ever find yourself explaining stuff to God like he doesn't already know? You're like, God, now listen, let me help you understand because you was probably busy. So see, what happened was they did this, so that's why I did that, and then they did that, so that's why, so that's why I've been acting out of pocket this last month. It's because what they did to me first. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? How do you not know the things which have happened? And I love this. Watch, watch. Jesus engages, not offended by their lack of belief, not upset by how quickly they've gone back home, not irritated they weren't at the tomb. Jesus engages in the conversation because that is what friends do. The disciples want answers, but what they need is nearness. The disciples want guarantees, but what they need is faith. The disciples want explanations, but what God offers them is conversation that will draw them in and leave them transformed for all of eternity. God, just explain how this is all gonna work out and then I'll be okay. The problem with that theology is you are only okay until the next unexplainable event. And hear me, friend, life is filled with the unexplainable. It is filled with events and experiences that lack the answers we so desire. But allow me to challenge your thinking tonight. You don't need more information. Instead, you need a fresh revelation of the nearness of the God-man Jesus in your life. See, when God is near, I realize I don't need answers as much as I need relationship. And what he offers me is his presence, and that's enough. See, the Bible says that I need a peace that passes my understanding, a hope that is anchored in heaven, a mind that is set above, and a faith that endures. But never once does it say that I need answers to all of life's questions. Watch what Luke says. Watch, watch, watch. He says, in these two disciples, they were sad because they was hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel. Mm. But see, Jesus wasn't just after Israel. He was after every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. See, what we are praying for and what God is interested in doing oftentimes don't even exist in the same universe. I'm praying, God, give me a building. And he's saying, if you ask, I'll give you the nation. I'm praying, God, just bless my business. And he's saying, if you ask, I'll bless your entire generational line. It's not that our prayers are wrong. It's that they are often too small for what God intends to do. 
See, the next time that you're tempted to be sad that God didn't answer your prayer in the way that you wanted, just remind yourself of Luke 24. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are high above. And the answer he is working on won't just impact Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. But friend, we gotta be honest tonight. Because sometimes the way that people talk about their relationship with God, it almost seems like they've never struggled in that relationship with God. And the reason why a testimony has power is because it is authentically connected to the reality of your experience. Well, I never doubted a day in my life. Number one, you're a liar. And number two, it's a bad testimony. I never, ever once experienced a lack of faith. Nobody can relate to that. You know what people can relate to? Man, I wanted to give up 17 times this week. But I'll tell you what, I'm holding on to him and God is holding even tighter onto me and I'm glad that I'm making it because not only am I gonna survive in this season, I'm gonna thrive in the next one. That's reality, that's real. But see, we gotta be real tonight because if we were to be honest, if we were to be honest, if we were to be honest, a lot of us are dealing with pain in our hearts because there are things that we hoped God would do that we haven't yet seen him do. God, if you would have just, you would have just been there, my mom would still be alive. Mm. God, if, if you would have just been there, my, my parents wouldn't have got divorced. God, God, if you would have just been there, I wouldn't have lost that job. God, if you would have been there, I wouldn't have gotten that car accident. God, if you would have just been there. And can I tell you, it's not wrong or even sinful to process your disappointments or your missed expectations with God. But at the end of the day, you must decide which altar you're going to bow at. Because if you bow at the altar of what you don't understand, then all you have is an intellectual faith that must make sense in your mind before you're willing to pledge your allegiance towards it. And the older I grow, the less I understand about the way that God works, but the more convinced I am that he does. And I gotta trust when I don't understand, God has seen my past, present, and future all at the same time. And he is working things together for my good. Watch, the story continues, I'm almost done. He said to them, how foolish you are. Now Jesus irritated, I've been listening to you complain explaining things to me like I wasn't there. It happened to me. <laughs> I was crucified. <laughs> he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? By the way, suffering is a necessary developmental stage of every young man and young woman's spiritual life. If you skip suffering, you will skip out on destiny. That's why Paul tells Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. Maybe just maybe God is less interested in rescuing you out of your hardship and more interested in developing you through your hardship. Suffering is a necessary stage. And be, I love this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. <laughs> And they drew near to the village where they was going and he indicated to them that he was going to go on further. Y'all go home, I'm gonna keep walking. 
but they urged him strongly, watch, stay with us, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. As the disciples are drawing near to home, Christ is drawing near to them. He has contended with them out of the scriptures. He has drawn their attention back to the law and of the prophets. He has reminded them of the messianic promises and all along he has been drawing them in. <laughs> Maybe you don't realize it tonight, but we sang the word, we prayed the word, we confessed the word and now I'm preaching the word. And whether you recognize it or not, all along God by his own spirit has been drawing you in this entire time. I didn't know God was working on me, but he was. I didn't know he was drawing me, but he was. In fact, now that I think about it, when I look back over my life, I can see all the times where I was unaware, but God was using seemingly insignificant and simple moments to draw me in to a right relationship with him. Now that you look at it, it all makes sense. But while it was happening, you didn't even realize what was going on. All of a sudden, everyone in your cubicle gets born again except you. All of a sudden, every family gathering, somebody's spouting off about the gospel. All of a sudden, you keep seeing Facebook and Instagram ads for a church. All of a sudden, you keep flipping through the channels, landing on Daystar every time. You thought it was just a coincidence. And God said, I got my eye on you and I'm drawing you in and I'm drawing you in for no man comes to the Father unless he is first drawn by God's spirit and God's been drawing you in. And just like Jesus on his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, when he stopped on a hilly place and he looked over the city and the Bible said he wept over the city. He said, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I have desired to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you have resisted me and you have killed the prophets and you have been stiff necked in your rebellion. But my desire, from the very beginning has been to draw you in. I don't know about you, but when I cross the city limits into Seattle, I feel the drawing of God's spirit on a region. I hear him saying, I got my eye on Seattle. I got my eye on the UW and I'm drawing them in one by one until this region knows me by name. Now watch, watch, watch. They say, Jesus, stay with us. We got the Chick-fil-A nuggets for dinner. Just stay, just stay. Now it came to pass, I love this. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, watch the words, watch the words that he took bread, he blessed and he broke it. And he gave it to them, watch, watch. Their eyes were opened and they knew him. Do you remember the moment that you crossed over from death into life? Where you crossed over from darkness into light? Where you crossed over from bondage and addiction into freedom? It's like your eyes were opened and in a moment of time, you knew him. Now watch, watch. And they said to one another, 
did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on that road and while he opened the scriptures to us. And so they rose from that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the other 11 who were still hiding assembled together saying, it is true. The Lord has risen. I love this moment because it's more profound than we realize. Jesus sits down at the table and just like he does on the night he is betrayed, he takes bread and he breaks it. And in that very moment, their eyes are opened and they knew him. Now the scriptures don't tell us this, but I imagine as Jesus is walking on that road to Emmaus, He's ever so discreetly concealing his hands. He's ever so discreetly allowing that robe to cascade on his feet to cover up those nail prints. He's ever so wearing that cloak that, that covers up the hole in his side from the spear. And I just kind of imagine in my mind's eyes as they sit down for dinner, and Jesus reaches out and grabs the loaf of bread and begins to break it. In a split instant, they see the holes in his hands. And they think to themselves, it's the wounded lamb of the universe. He's alive and he's walked with us this entire time. Don't you recognize that in the moments of your pain and your darkness and your dysfunction, that when Jesus reached out to you, he reached out with wounded hands. He said, I can heal your pain because I know what it's like. I can heal your betrayal because I know what it's like. I can heal your shame because I know what it's like. I can heal your confusion and your abandonment because I know what it's like. And when Jesus reaches into the miry clay of your life, it's not with pretty hands. It's with nail-scarred ones. Because when you see them, you recognize this Jesus is more familiar with my pain than I ever dared to imagine. Watch, watch, watch. Don't you see the significance? This is communion. This is the broken body and the spilled blood on full display. And still today, watch, we sense the presence of the invisible God in the midst of taking the communion elements, knowing that God himself takes residence inside the human heart. Now, I know we take communion on the first Sunday of the month. It's kind of just what we do. It gets a little ordinary. But I'm telling you, when I take communion, especially after Pastor Lou Engel was here and just blew up the entire church with his whole communion sermon six hours later, when I take communion, I feel a burning heart because God is near. Now, why did he vanish? Because he's got more people to appear to. 
He's got more disciples to convince. He's got more conversations to interrupt. He's got more dinner parties to crash. He wouldn't rest until the disciples knew that God did exactly what God said he would do. He raised his son from the grave. He broke the power of sin and he invited us into newness of life. And watch their response. Didn't our hearts burn? Wasn't this Jesus all along? I didn't realize how significant it was until he disappeared. Let me give you a warning tonight. Some people will never recognize the significance of God's presence, God's people, or God's church until they find themselves in an environment without it. Listen, don't take this for granted. Don't grow casual with the presence of God. Because this church is filled with the prayers of the last generation who now cheer us on from the great cloud of witnesses who died not receiving their promise but are celebrating that we are receiving ours. My prayer is not that you would be entertained. It's, it's not that you would be amused or impressed with our giftedness. My prayer for this community is that our hearts would so burn for the living God that this region would never be the same. Hear me, let me end here. The proof that you have been with Jesus is not how much you know. It's not how many verses you've memorized. It's not how many conferences you've attended. It's not how much you gave in the miracle offering. The proof you've been with Jesus is didn't our hearts burn within us. And when we grow old and die, may people say of us, I didn't always agree. I didn't always understand. I didn't always like the pace that they ran at. And at times they made mistakes. But there is one thing I can't deny. Their hearts burned for the presence of the living God. We're just strangers on the road, not deserving what we have so freely been given. The God of the universe has interrupted the dialogue of our lives. He's interjected himself into the narrative of our souls. And in doing so, he leaves us with a heart that burns, knowing that the same God who raised his own son from the dead will raise all sons and daughters from the dead one day. And in doing so, we will be with him forever. This is the God that we serve. And this is the burning heart that we receive from him. Come on, would you stand with me as we close tonight?